2: When it comes to bra shopping, it's all about finding the right fit for you. And actually, I kind of mean y'all because there's more than one you involved here. By that, I mean there's sort of three yous. There's you and then your left and your right because those are three different things that all need to be fit. Um, And you know what? Third Love is the only brand that offers half sizes. And I just think that's amazing because... How often have you been in a too small or too big bra? Basically every day of your life or every day since you started wearing bras. Because it's really hard to find something that fits perfectly. A half size is really probably what most of us need. What's more, Third Love has sizes double A through G. Again, with all of those in half cups as well. Third Love uses thousands of real women's measurements to create their bras. And they use super smoothing memory foam too. They are terrific bras that look good and feel great. Did you know that most old school bras only carry 15 sizes? Third Love has 60 sizes, including all those half cups. And if you haven't heard of a half cup, like I said, that's because no one else does it. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order to find the bra you've been waiting for your entire life. Again, maybe not entire life, but you know, since 13 or so, I don't know. For me, it was around 13. Uh, All you have to do is answer a few simple questions from 3rd Love's Fit Finder Quiz. It takes 60 seconds and you can do it from the comfort of your own home. No awkward fitting room scenarios whatsoever. Try a 3rd Love bra. It is so comfortable. You might forget you're wearing it. I mean, that, you might they're that comfortable. And if you don't agree, returns exchanges are easy and free. So again, my listeners can get 15% off. This is a great time of year to get fitted and be free of bad fitting bras. So go to thirdlove.com friends and find that perfect fitting bra. Again, that's 15% off your first purchase. thirdlove.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox and welcome to With Friends Like These. Uh, today's show, I'm going to give you dessert first. Uh, Usually I kind of do the lighter segment second and the more serious one first, Uh, but doing the opposite today. Today, first, we're going to have Katie Natopoulos. She's a senior tech reporter for BuzzFeed News, and she and I are going to talk about uh, the Paul brothers. Uh, Frequent listeners to the podcast may remember the discussion I had about Logan Paul uh, and his uh, controversial video in the ways that he is like Donald Trump. Uh, we're continuing that uh, investigation into how the Paul brothers may or may not resemble the Trump phenomenon with Katie. And after Katie, I am talking to Jamar Tisby. He is the president of the Witness, a Black Christian collective, and he's the co-host of the podcast "Pass the Mic." And I'll just warn you right now, it gets real Jesusy up in here—more uh, Jesusy than I've been in a while. And I just want to say now something that he and I touch on in the conversation as well which is that we understand both of us as Christians that there are lots of people who have been hurt by the religion that we practice and that owning that is part of being who we are today but it is a long discussion about faith and justice and I give some of my own testimony during it so if that's not something that you want to hear right now you get to have Katie first and then decide if you want to go further I hope you do I think it's an important discussion, in the end, a discussion about allyship, which is really, at its core, what this show is about. But first, Katie. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you for having me. So, I think, for some listeners to the show, uh, they might not immediately get why the subject of the Paul brothers is of interest to someone that mainly covers politics. And perhaps you, you, you yourself, the person I've invited on the show to discuss this is in is, is wondering.
3: Here it is. Uh, well, I, I mean, I assume <laughs> that he'll be a future president. So. Yes, that
2: is basically it. That is that <laughs> is kind of my interest is I assume he will be a future president in part because so I, I knew sort of vaguely who these Dudes were because of their escapades. Um, but, you know, I thought it was mainly for the youngs and I didn't really pay attention to it. Youngs do stupid things all the time. And then the suicide forest trip happened. And one of your colleagues mm. at BuzzFeed, all over the story, um, uh, Sochi, what's her, la- I can't remember her last name. Cool? Uh, yes. One of your colleagues at, at BuzzFeed, Sochi Cool, wrote a really wonderful essay about the celebrity. Of Logan Paul and its vacuousness and sort of the way that YouTube has become a collection of of cool kids in high school. And it clicked for me that yes, this is the Trump generation in some ways. Not the olds that mm-hmm. we keep blaming for Trump, but this sort of celebrity. And, and you, that was, that was, that story was about Logan Paul, but you have investigated the doings of the younger, Jake Paul. Yes. Tell us about him.
3: So uh, Jake, uh, like Logan, became popular first on Vine and then migrated over to YouTube. Um, He's now possibly more popular on YouTube than his older brother. Um, But you're sort of about the same. They do a lot of videos together. Probably same types of fans. Uh, They're called the Jake Paulers as opposed to the Logang. And he had... uh, He had gotten in some trouble over the summer. Uh, There was a story where basically like he and a bunch of his uh, YouTube buddies all live in a house together. And they had been doing all these pranks and stunts in the house. That's sort of like what he does. And at one point they like lit his entire pool on fire. And apparently uh, his neighbors have been like complaining to the city about this, you know, house full of YouTubers who has been terrorizing their neighborhood and lowering their property values because there's like cars all over the place. They're lighting the pool on fire. It's a disaster. Um, I think that that's sort of when I think a little bit of like people who aren't teenagers obsessed with YouTube kind of maybe first heard of him because it was a sort of funny story. It was like these neighbors in this fancy area are really sick of this YouTube idiot running around lighting his pool on fire. Um, and uh, so he had uh, put out uh it was probably filmed over the summer, I think sort of before this scandal, um, but finally uploaded and put out there on the Internet at the beginning of the year uh, a series that he uh, it's called Edfluence, which is a educational video series that costs um, the pricing is actually a little complicated because uh, (laughs) the site's a little messed up. So when you check out, it's unclear how much you're paying. Approximately $55. You can get a series of 74 uh, tutorial videos that tell you how to become a YouTube star or a social influencer. Um, And so I sat and watched all 74 of these videos um, and I learned a lot. Um, he's He's a fascinating guy.
2: I mean, I guess my first question for you is I I read your story about about watching all of all of these videos. And there is one discontinuity with the Trump metaphor here, which is that unlike Trump University, Mm. you appear to have actually learned something from the Jake Paul videos, unlike those who enrolled at Trump University.
3: Yeah. So. So Um, I got that. I do. I did. (laughs) I did learn something. Um, I mean, I'm not attempting to become a social media star, so it wasn't actually helpful to me in my personal goals. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my goal was to like simply make it through this video series. Um, I mean, I, I got a little bit of Stockholm syndrome uh, watching him. But, you know, I, I think there is something that is similar to Trump in that part of his even idea for doing this, like I don't think this is going to be the most profitable stream of income for him. Like, I don't think that many people are going to sign up for this. Like this might make him a few thousand dollars. Like a hundred people might actually plunk down the 50 bucks to do this. I, I, I am skeptical that a lot of people will, um, compared to the types of money he can make simply by doing videos and getting, you know, ad dollars from, uh, you know, brand partners or whatever. I mean, this is a real like drop in the bucket, But I do think there is a thing of he is very proud of his business acumen. And Mm. that's sort of part of his personality. So he's in his regular videos, he's this wild and crazy guy. He's sort of this cartoonish, over the top frat boy, um, but who's also a high school dropout. Um, And he's, you know, he's crazy, sort of doing all these insane stunts. um, But then he also, on his YouTube page, he has a separate set of videos called Jake Paul Biz. And it's a little bit of like a light version of the. edfluence course where he tells you about, like, interesting aspects of his business. Um, and I think similar to Trump, like, you know, Trump's really obsessed with, like, I'm a great businessman. I have business acumen. I'm, a, you know, stable genius. And in a way, Jake Paul is similarly, like, really excited to like that's part of his appeal. I think that's why people like him. Like, they love the fact that he's actually made a lot of money on YouTube. They think that's awesome. Um It's not, you know, it's not shameful. It's not like, oh, well, you know, I'm here to entertain you. But on the side, yes, I admit it. I take money from brands to do these partnerships. Like, he's really proud of it. Yeah. and that is an interesting tension with fans. A lot of fans really hate it when the social media stars that they watch, um, when they do ads for brands, like they're like, ugh, we hate it when you shill. they um, you have know, got really negative comments. But I think that his fans have sort of been brought on board to be like, that's awesome. Jake's getting paid. He's making money. Like, he drives Lamborghinis. He has a crazy watch. Like, this is awesome. We love participating in the business of Jake Paul. I think in the same way, people are really impressed with Trump in that way.
2: Yeah. The parallel that strikes me immediately after hearing you describe him like having the Lamborghini and the really fancy watch and the I'm the great businessman is that much in the same way that Trump has been described as like a very the most vulgar um, example of what it would be like to be rich, like a not mm-hmm. not to, I'm trying to not use like tr- problematic language here, but. Um, you know, a a poor person's version of what it's like to be rich. Um, the Paul mm-hmm. brothers are like the teenager's version of what it's like to be rich. Like a white male teenager specifically. Like if you just gave any yeah. random bro like a fuck ton of money, they would act like this. Right. And that's the that's that's part of like the appeal for a lot of people, is like they're doing what I would do if I got all that money.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's similar to, like, you know, at some point people used to idolize, you know, rock stars or rap stars that had these over-the-top lifestyles and, like, a big mansion and driving a fancy car. And now it's, like, teenagers are seeing that in YouTubers. And I think it's just—it's almost like it's just MTV Cribs doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> but we see inside the YouTuber's house every day. Right. Um, I mean, I, I guess I should also clarify, technically, he does not own a Lamborghini. Oh, okay. actually um So he— I feel like this is sort of a perfect example of like the Jake Paul world sort of. So one of the examples that he gives in his tutorial is he's sort of telling you tips about how to make your daily vlogs engaging. And he, you know, he says, don't just sit there and like talk about your day. You got to make it like a story, like a beginning, a middle and an end, which is like actually like really good advice. Right. Like, you know, sort of craft some thoughtful arc into what you're going to sit there like grab people hook them you know um and he describes he's like one of my most popular videos ever is exactly that format it's a it's a vlog format it's about here's what we did today but it it has a beginning a middle and an end it um it's about how I pranked my brother Logan by pretending to buy him a Lamborghini which is his dream car and so the video starts with me like setting up the prank and I'm you know I'm putting the car in the garage and everything, so he's going to see it. And then, you know, we reveal it to him, and he starts crying. He's so emotional, and that's the middle. And then at the end, we reveal, ha-ha, it was just a prank, and he's really upset. But then they get through it, and they, together as brothers, decide they will go out and each buy their own Lamborghinis. Um, <laughs> And so that's the like, you know, cathartic emotional conclusion. And, you know, he's right. That's why this video was so popular. Like at one point, his brother's crying. Um, And so I thought from hearing his description and watching this video that they actually did at the end purchase Lamborghinis. I, I sort of fast forwarded a little bit through it and I saw that they show up at a Lamborghini dealership at the end. And then when I went back and looked, I realized there was actually a longer arc here where they didn't actually buy the Lamborghinis that day because it turns out you can't just walk into a Lamborghini dealership and, like, walk out. Like you can't just drive <laughs> off the lot with one yeah. um, because they're sort of limited edition cars. Um, so it, instead, they uh, they talked to the Lamborghini dealership. They decided they were going to go on a journey to Italy to actually go to the, like, you know, Lamborghini headquarters make custom cars together and then pick up their Lamborghinis from Italy. So they actually, they film themselves going to Italy. They're in Italy. They're so excited. There's a whole video. They go into the Lamborghini dealership or I guess the headquarters. And immediately some Italian guy is like, you can't film in here. So they're so (laughs) upset that they can't, because the whole thing is they want to film right. the experience of actually, like, you know, writing the check for the Lamborghini and handing it over and getting the keys. They're not allowed to film in there. They walk off. They don't buy the Lamborghinis. They say, you know, screw that. We're not buying these Lamborghinis if we can't film in here. So they went this whole trip to Italy. We're planning on buying a $400,000 car, but simply because they couldn't film in the offices, they decide, they just walked out empty-handed.
2: If you can't vlog it, it didn't happen, right? <laughs> If a,
3: if a <laughs> exactly. Lamborghini, I mean, you know.
2: if a Lamborghini isn't filmed in the lobby, did it ever exist? I don't know what the right metaphor or cone is for this, but yeah, that seems like a perfect expression of their world for sure. Now you you mm-hmm. write in in your story like how much this gives you fear for the future. Um, Want to talk a little about that?
3: I mean. I think that what was startling about it was that, you know, I had severely underestimated Jake Paul. Um, <laughs> as, you
1: know.
2: Sounds again, sounds familiar. There's a parallel there.
3: <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, I, you know, I looked at him. And I was like, oh, well, you know. Young girls like him because he's, you know, this cute blonde guy with, you know, muscles and, you know, people and boys like him because he's kind of goofy and aspirational and does physical pranks. Like, he's kind of an idiot. Like, he's, you know, he's he's only appealing to children because he's like this outsized cartoon character, um, you know, and he's sort of stumbled into this stardom. Um, and then seeing him actually, like you know, talk about the business side of it and uh, maybe not even, the, but like sort of just how sophisticated his knowledge of how the YouTube ecosystem, specifically the, the algorithms, which are something that like, you know, people who work, you know, as social media managers for large companies, you know, struggle to deal with. I mean, he sort of he has the same level of insight as someone who would, you know, their days and nights or their professional job is to be like a social media manager kind of person. Um, You know, he has a really deft understanding of this whole landscape and ecosystem. And I really did not expect that from him. Um, I mean, his tone in the videos, it's much more subdued. It's, you know, he's comes off much more intelligent, really thoughtful. And I mean, and the insights that he's come up with are, you know, I I believe that they're his own. I mean, you know, he obviously like works with other people and, you know, I'm sure he has like manager and lawyer types who help him on these brand deals. But I I, I do think that, you know, he's not like a puppet on a string, like there's no Svengali behind him. He he's sort of created this himself. Um, and I, I you know, I think we're at a at a point where like uh you know, there's sort of studies that show like the number one profession that most like eleven year olds want to be is YouTube star. Uh, um and then he's sort uh. of, you know, he's made it seem like, well, it's po- it, it is like obtainable. And the trick to it is you have to just really study the analytics that the platforms do already offer you, and then you can kind of game them. Um which, you know, is somehow like a sad, I don't know. I I, I wish that there was like a secret to his success that was the ingenuity behind how he makes his videos. And it's not. It's it's a lot of like hustle and building followings, um, which has more to do with like the same way that like, you know, the Denny's Instagram might do it.
2: And you also point out that he he gives some tips and tricks about building followers that are just, I mean, pretty disingenuous trick. They're tricks, not tips, let's say.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he's sort of like a complete mercenary in that sense. Like he does stuff that I think that most of us would find totally uncouth. So one of his tactics that he loves to do is sort of mass follow people and hope that a bunch of them will follow him back. And then, you know, the next day, unfollow all those people that he, you know, you sort of you do see some celebrities doing that. um, Tay Diggs is sort of notorious for doing that on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, like he follows like three hundred thousand people or something. Um, I mean he just sort of you know got some bad advice from a social media manager. Um, one of the other. Uh tricks that he does is Snapchat is, like, really difficult for influencers to break through. Snapchat has sort of designed it specifically. Like, they don't care about influencers, really. Um, and they don't give them, you know, sort of discovery privileges like, you know, Instagram does. And they don't really build relationships with them the way that Vine did or even, you know, YouTube and Instagram do. Uh, so what what he suggests is because it's hard to get your name out there on Snapchat, you um, what you should do is create a Tinder profile, put your Snapchat and your Tinder handle, and then just like, you know leave it there. It doesn't you don't have to be using Tinder. but the <laughs> idea is that like thousands of people in your area will happen to swipe by and see it. It's basically the same as like you know, wheat pasting a sticker up on you know, a poster for your you know rock show onto the wall and hope that people who walk by notice it. I yeah. mean, it's sort of the the same thing. I mean, but it's it's such a cynical thing too, you know, Use Tinder for that, and then one of the other things he does is um, it, uh, Snapchat doesn't verify influencers or YouTubers, um, and verified people on Snapchat have you can sort of tell they're verified. They don't have a check mark, but. Only Verify people can use an emoji in their username, or specifically they have like a special emoji that goes at the very uh, far right-hand column of the screen when you're following them. And what uh, what Jake does is he takes the space bar when he's creating his user handle, you know, space, 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 and then he has, I believe it's the dollar sign emoji or the like stack of dollar bills is what he uses. And that way, if you're looking at your, you know, list of friends, it looks like he's verified because he has the far right emoji just like all the verified people does, but he's not actually doing it. he's sort of like tricked, you know, he's tricked it into looking like he actually is verified. And you were
2: well, I don't know. Were you joking when you said at the opening here that you fully expect him to to be president someday? <laughs>
3: I mean <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not the only person to have made that joke. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's funny because it's like they are so like Logan and Jake. They're such dunces. Um, but, you know, I don't know. We're through the looking glass <laughs> now. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Exactly. <laughs> right. And like at a time where like celebrity and, you know, the cult of celebrity is so meaningful, um, you know anything could happen i mean i i I am curious what will happen to them in five years um jake had some success uh he was acting in a um a disney channel show like he wasn't the main actor but he was like one of the people on the show um called bizardvark um but he was unfortunately dropped from the show after the incident with the neighbors um So, you know, he is trying to sort of get through into, like, mainstream acting. Um, It's unclear at this point, really, like, what the trajectory for a top YouTuber is. I think that in a lot of ways they don't feel like they need traditional Hollywood or these mainstream roles because they're making plenty of money without it. Um, You know, if you're just a up-and-coming struggling actor going on tons of auditions, that's, you know— a much more frustrating and less satisfying lifestyle than, you know, making a hundred thousand dollars a month by vlogging your skate pranks or whatever. Yeah. You know,
2: this may be coming a little out of left field for you in this interview, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it, which is that right now we're having a a discussion in this country about influences on social media, and it includes the influence of, you know, bots and uh, state actors Mm. from Russia.
3: Mhm.
2: Now, the thing about your story about Jake Paul is it it made me think oh, oh no, maybe this generation coming up isn't savvier than we are. Like cuz one of the things that his his you know, uh course illustrated to you was that it he people fall for this stuff. Like it's not he's not mm-hmm. you know, like you said, he's not incredibly innovative or anything. He's like grifting. And uh, tricking people it's not it's it, it and it seems like it's something that just people aren't being incredibly sophisticated in their consumption of it or they are being sophisticated and don't care what 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 do you think
1: I
3: mean I think that one one aspect of it is that you know he I mean he's grifting 11 year olds you know who are <laughs> A little bit easier to grift than uh, Uh, people of actual voting age. I don't know about Um, that, but you know, I mean, his followers are pretty young. You know, probably eighteen to fifteen is probably the you know his biggest demographic. Um, And you, I mean, you know, they're they're sort of children, so it's a little bit easier to trick them than it might be. Are they on Tinder? Are the eleven
2: year olds on Tinder?
3: I guess that's true. They're not on Tinder. I hope not. Um, But, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, like, Musical.ly is a a, really popular app uh, for very young users where it's like you just it's a lip sync video app, basically. And there's people who become stars within that app. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jake recommends that, like, Even if you don't like lip syncing and you think it's stupid and it's for kids, you should get on this app anyways because you can—a lot of those kids are such rabid—will become rabid fans and they'll follow you over to YouTube or Instagram. Um, So, I mean, there is that, but I I wouldn't rule out that the Paul brothers are both chaos agents sent from Russia to disrupt (laughs) uh, American culture. Um, I think that is a, you know, reasonable theory that could be borne out. Yeah.
2: I, I like let's we'll get the House Intelligence Committee right on it. um, they're investigating <laughs> all sorts of stuff that seems weirder, so yeah, why not that? yeah, um, thank you so much i I am I'm am, hopefully you'll be, recover from your Stockholm syndrome uh, from watching the Jake Paul <laughs> videos. Uh, I don't know what the antidote is for that. um hey, we have a great sponsor on this show, The Great Courses Plus. that's probably like. <laughs> Literally the diametric maybe, opposite. So, you know, maybe. Maybe
3: I'll, they can, you know, they can work together. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I was thinking more. I will like give you some
2: Great Forces Plus like a reference and like you can it'll be like the it'll be like smart in your brain or <laughs> I don't know.
1: Um, oh, okay. But I, okay, I do
2: really appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, we'll we'll keep tabs um, uh, on 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 the Paul brothers. Uh, I guess they'd be old enough to run in 20 years or so. So
3: Sounds about right. Yeah. Right. 15, I think, maybe. All yeah. right. Well, <laughs> I, we'll talk to you before then. But thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. This was really fun.
2: So you may have sensed a theme to some of the uh, sponsors of the show. We're all about new starts. Everyone's about new starts in January. And... One of the things that I resolve to do this year, I do it almost every year, you know, besides I've talked about drink water, is read more. But, of course, it's hard to read more because I'm I'm doing stuff all the time. So I do a lot more listening to podcasts, but also I listen to The Great Courses Plus. They are a sponsor of the show, so I get to experience how good they are uh, on a regular basis. I get recommendations for uh, particular courses to sample. The one that I am actually listening to right now is Argumentation, the Study of Effective Reasoning. And if you're listening to this show, I think you probably have some interest in that course. It's not just about how to argue. It's also about the history of argumentation and rhetoric. It's about the different kinds of arguments you can make. It's about the styles of arguments. And it's about why and how to engage in arguments, which is really more what this show is about, too. Um, It's not about owning people on the Internet. It's about putting together logical arguments and avoiding logic traps. I think you're going to like it. And if you don't, there are over 8,500 other courses to choose from, including modern political traditions, cybersecurity, astronomy, and also things like cooking, photography, uh, poetry, whatever you want. Again, that's 8,500 courses. So there's going to be something you're interested in. If one of your New Year's resolutions is to, you know, do more with your mind, great courses plus. I know you'll love it as much as I do, and they are giving with friends like these listeners a free trial, unlimited access to the entire library, but you do need to go to my special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. That's the, T-H-E, greatcoursesplus, not the plus sign, but rather spell out plus, .com slash friends. So thegreatcoursesplus slash friends for access to All of those courses, from the stuff that might make you feel like you're doing something good for yourself to the stuff that's going to be super relaxing and sheerly just for pleasure, or if you're like me, you know, the stuff where you're learning is pleasurable too. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom. In a tight 30 minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis in conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So, you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim and immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Midi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at TheIntercept.com slash Deconstructed or on any podcast platform. And now I'd like to welcome Jamar Tisby. He's the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective,
0: and also co-host of Pass the Mic.
2: Welcome to the show, Jamar.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I've been a big fan of your show for a while.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much. I have known of you through our mutual friend, John Ward. Uh, And I had one of those wonderful like worlds smashing together moments on Twitter this week when you popped up in my feed because... John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, uh, (laughs) a a band that I've loved most of my life, um, tweeted at you and Rod Dreher. And I'm going to be totally honest. Like this week's episode of the show could be something it could be called something like uh, arguments that happened online this week um, because that's what we're covering this week. Uh, I do think that would be a good podcast in general, by the way. Someone could just cover Twitter fights. Um,
0: that would have to be a daily show.
2: It would have to be a daily show. But let's talk about this one in particular because it's how it got you here. But we have a, a lot of things to discuss. So I don't want to go into too much detail. But Rod Dreher. So he is a name that might be familiar to some folks who are listening. Uh, he is a conservative. I, I think he would consider himself kind of a small C conservative. Um. He was a never Trump person, uh, largely along. Um, I would say almost aesthetic grounds. Uh, his a lot of his criticisms of Trump have to do with his vulgarity. But he wrote a column this week that got a lot of people angry on the internet. Uh, do you want to review what happened for us?
0: Sure. I first, I don't follow Rod Dreher on social media or anything. I, it first came to my attention through Jamel Bowie of Slate, uh, who quoted a particular paragraph talking about uh, the poor, particularly the people in Section 8 housing. And uh, the paragraph says, you know, let's think about Section 8 housing. If word got out that the government was planning to build a housing project for the poor in your neighborhood, how would you feel about it? Be honest with yourself. Nobody would consider this good news. And he goes on, um, do you want the people who turned their neighborhood into an asshole, uh, quoting, you know, the the president and his yeah. comments, uh, to bring their hole to your street? No, you don't. Be honest. You don't. And so that was the particular paragraph that made the rounds. And I went and I clicked and I read the entire article saying, surely he's, going to mitigate that somehow. Surely he's going to say, but that's not the Christian response. And I was disappointed because the article really doesn't do that. And so yeah. uh, along with a lot of other people, we said, well, this isn't a Christian attitude toward the poor. We recognize our kind of reflex to towards selfishness and a desire for comfort, but um, Christ teaches us another way. And so I simply tried to express that.
2: Right. And I should clarify for people maybe who aren't familiar that, that Roger, he's a, a small C uh, conservative, large C Christian, <laughs> very Correct. large C. Yes. Um, and he's written a book called The Benedict Option, which got a lot of people talking uh, that n- advocates withdrawing from society and in, in following what uh, historically known as the Benedict rule and um, has to do with with forming a community of faith. And following a tradition of fasting and contemplative prayer. But a lot of people have, you know, I, I maybe like yourself, I actually read your reviews, so I'm cheating. I actually know what your first thought was about this book because I shared it, <laughs> which is like, huh, this is kind of interesting. I like contemplation. You know, I like uh, withdrawing from the world as a, a way of kind of um, maintaining one's focus on, on the spiritual. This is an interesting concept, but it turns out that his book is not just like some, it's not necessarily about contemplation and prayer. It has a lot to say about the world as it is, too. Yes,
0: yes. yes. It it got a lot of both support and pushback. And so, you know, I think uh, Rod would probably take issue with, with the idea of withdrawing. I think he's trying to say that's not what he's advocating. What he's advocating is that Christians build strong cultural practices, uh, right. through prayer, through um, different, you know, monk-like and ascetic practices to basically combat the influence of secular society. But I think the the main issue is this kind of embattled mentality that right. Christians are under siege in America in a way that they've never been before. And so what I think the book is trying to do is if that is say that if that's the case, how do we as Christians preserve our, our distinctive flavor and and traditions. And so, you know, the, the problem is mm. he leaped across an ocean to another continent to contemplate uh, monks, uh, Benedictine monks, without ever looking at the black church right. in America, which has always existed in a society that has marginalized and dehumanized them. So I was right. just like, well, what gives here? Why not? Uh, mind the riches of the black church tradition to figure out how to live in a society uh, that in many ways tries to reject you and belittle you. So that was a missing part of the book in my estimation.
2: Right. And that's actually the through line here, in case people are wondering, like, what he wrote about Section 8 housing is racist. (laughs) And it, it, his entire argument is 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 you're right. Like, I, I think it, it took people who are really thinking about marginalized cultures to engage with his book in this particular way. A lot of people engaged with it um, kind of ex- taking even liberal critics, some of them who read the book, uh, engaged with it, taking for granted this idea that modern Christians are particularly embattled by a rapidly, demor- you know, like degenerating culture. Right.
0: right. I mean, that's and a very myopic view. <laughs>
2: it is. And it it skips a lot. And it's something I think actually the listeners of this this program would be very interested to hear, because I do think actually, you know, hashtag resistance white people also think of themselves as particularly embattled sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. you know
2: what? There's a whole history of embattlement on this continent <laughs> that that's maybe right. we should we should take a page from.
0: Well, you raise a lot of really important points. One is the racism question. If you read the news today and, and writings, it seems there, there are no racists left. Um, <laughs> it, no one is considered racist anymore because I, because I think there's such a stigma around that term. It's almost the worst thing to be called in public, at least one of the worst things. And so naturally, people recoil against that label. But in the process there's actually nothing that can be labeled or termed racist anymore. Now, I've never called Rod Dreher a racist. I don't know his intentions. I don't know his motivations. The only thing I can do is read what he's written um, and the ways he's responded to people. And I say that at at the least, it's racially insensitive and and, and ignorant of our history. But at most, regardless of intention, you can say racist things and do racist things without ever meaning to. And we've got to understand that. In America today, because there's a lot of racist stuff going on, but nobody wants to claim that label. Uh, and, and and so in doing that, they continue to do racist things. So that's one of the things that I try to bring light to in my writing and my speaking is that, you know, racism operates in a lot of different ways. And guess what? You don't always have to mean to be racist to actually do racist things.
2: Yeah, we, we uh, one of the uh, catchphrases of this show is that um, calling someone racist is white people kryptonite. Like, yeah. we just shiver and, like, you know, ah! like, lose all of our powers um, if you call us racist, or that's how we think, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I I actually have come to prefer the term uh, white supremacy, which I used to think of as a more radical term. Like, I wouldn't use it because it, it sounds somehow worse. Um, But I've come around to the idea that white supremacy at least describes a system.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And
2: sometimes people respond better if you're describing a system rather than like trying to divine their particular intent.
0: Well, that's. That's an interesting thing because I work, um, a lot of my work is speaking to white evangelicals and there is a really deep misunderstanding and a, and a, a failure and perhaps even an unwillingness to acknowledge the systemic and institutional ways that racism plays out. It's all very individual and personal. So racism only exists between one person and another person and therefore The solution is, hey, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee, or some of my best friends are black and therefore I'm not racist. Failing to acknowledge that the systems in which we operate political, economic, social were created to um, create a racial hierarchy with white people on the top, people of color, particularly black people, at the bottom. And merely by participating in that system, you can perpetuate it in Mm -hmm. a systemic and institutional way. And so, one of the biggest you know, points I try to get across all the time is that racism is bigger than just personal animus. It 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 lives and resides in systems uh, that we all participate in.
2: You know, you you mentioned you talked to white evangelicals. Uh, they're kind of in the news uh, a lot these days. <laughs> a little bit, yep, a little bit. Um, and and I I want to get I t- I mentioned something sort of in my wind up here about two different groups that consider themselves and particularly under siege these days. Uh, one is white evangelicals, and the other is actually like hashtag resistance white people um i'd like to get your take on both of those uh illusions of um you know embattlement but let's start with the white evangelicals um it's they to me have always occupied this strange space this strange mentality of both continuous embattlement and also righteousness um like both we are incredibly correct and we'll eventually you know Uh, rule rule basically Um, but also oh my god the culture is worse than it's ever been Um, right now uh, they have embraced this president Mm. who seems to embody both of those tendencies in a weird way right
0: absolutely he's the Um, president
2: and he's also the embodiment of an incredibly vulgar culture
0: that the the 2016 election where we we got our current president, um, things had been building for a while. But I think that election was a, a real turning point. Um, I study history and I, I just anticipate we're not good at predicting the future, but um, I anticipate that will be a very thoroughly studied uh, event in modern mm-hmm. U.S. history. But I think I mean, that 81 percent number of white evangelicals who pulled the lever for the current president was, in a way, not surprising if you look at voting patterns. But given this particular candidate, it felt really shocking. It -hmm. felt really shocking for a lot of people, uh, both black and white. And so I also interact with a lot of um, racial and ethnic minorities who are somehow involved in predominantly white Christian spaces. And we all felt, Many of us felt a sense of betrayal that there had been this spirit of, you know, racial reconciliation and trying to uh, finally foster integration in the churches. And then, despite this man's bigotry, despite this man's um, history—long history of racism, uh, racist um, words and practices—they still chose to support him over all of our objections. I mean, folks were not silent leading up to the election. And so it made a lot of us reconsider, well, what is this thing? Is this really Christianity? Or is this what the Bible calls syncretism, this blending of uh, sacred and secular in a way that that actually negates the the true intention of the religion? So yeah, we're doing a lot. Of, I think I think white evangelicals are forced to do a lot of soul searching. And, and you've got folks, his... Uh, you know, what people call the court evangelicals, who constantly back him up, constantly defend him no matter what he does. And everybody sees the hypocrisy of it.
2: And I want to drill down on something you mentioned, which is that I pointed out Trump's vulgarity, and that I think for a lot of non-spiritual, non, you know, people of, I shouldn't say non-spiritual, perhaps they're spiritual, people who aren't of a particular uh, faith tradition, um, especially Christianity, they look at Trump and his relationship with the evangelicals and their big disconnect is he, you know, uh, associated with casinos, married a few times, slept around, you know, talks, talks filthy, um, all of that. I will note that is not what you brought up as evangelicals uh, objection or as like or as people of color who happen to work in faith traditions, their objection, their objection was not that he's been married a few times. It's that he's a fucking racist. <laughs> it's,
0: it's white <laughs> supremacy, like you yeah. said, um, it, it is it is the embodiment of white supremacy. And it's important to note that what the president is saying is not drastically different than what people many people still unfortunately deeply believe to be true that people of color uh, whether immigrants whether people um, from mexico whether black people are somehow inferior and whether you couch that in religious and theological terms or biological terms as they did in the 19th century or nowadays in cultural terms they have a they have a a dysfunctional culture that we need to keep out it's still white supremacy it's yeah. still preserving the dominance of whiteness in every social institution that we have. And so that's what people of color um, and black people in particular are, are saying. You know, We're jumping up and down and waving our arms and saying, look, this is bad for us in particular, but it's bad for the entire nation. Uh, we cannot be a unified people if we have a person in the highest level of political leadership who is emboldening bigotry? Which I think he's done very clearly and consistently.
2: And to be very clear, like this is something that you were trying to tell your your fellow evangelicals. Oh yes, um, <laughs> I can hear I can hear the weariness in your the voice.
0: Fatigue. Yeah, uh, you know, we talk a lot about self care, and it is so important because this battle is weary. I. I have literally spoken to thousands of white evangelicals at churches, conferences, retreats—you name it—and I'm always talking about the the unity that we have in Christ, the the image of God from Genesis one that that gives us um, equal dignity in the eyes of our Creator and how we should treat each other. And and you get nothing but yeses and amens, right? This is not—we're not by and large dealing with the rabid racist who, just because of the color of someone's skin, is going to reject them. You're dealing with people who, in principle, agree, Mm -hmm. but fail to see how their practices perpetuate white supremacy, particularly their voting practices. So when the rubber hit the road and it was time for you to make a change because of your marginalized brother or sister, that didn't happen to the tune of 81% of white evangelicals voting for this man and continuing many of them to support him vocally or at least say, well, we don't like his rhetoric or we don't like some of the things he's done in his past, but our policies are getting passed. So let's just be realistic. We're going to tolerate him.
2: And that is the, that's where we get to um, this notion, this fiction of embattlement being key, which is the reason how they justify voted, voting for Trump. Is that they have told a story to themselves, white evangelicals have told a story to themselves, which is a story that Rod tells as well. He's not evangelical, but he's the same mentality of this besiegement. This like we are we are under attack.
0: Right, right, right. And a lot of it revolves around sexual ethics, whether um, uh, Obergefell and, and homosexual marriage or, or transgender or or you name it. A lot of it revolves around these similar issues, abortion And they felt under President Obama that they were being attacked, that they were just being um, run over in terms of a social and political revolution toward liberalism. But it's not a recent thing. Um, I mean, it goes back very far, but we can just look at the 70s and 80s and and the rise of the religious right and the moral majority. It is much easier to play on people's fears than to cast a vision of hope. And that's right. what happened in the culture wars. What happened in the culture wars is, is to say, look, we and our way of life and our beliefs are under attack from prayer in schools to the sanctity of life in the womb. No one gets us, no one understands us, and we have to fight back. And then they took on it took on a political cast. And so they said, we need to elect the candidates who represent our religious beliefs and we need to take power. And I get that, but also... Have we forgotten the fact that Christianity has always been a religion that thrives on the margins? And maybe it's not for Christians to have earthly power in, in the sense of, of politics or money or the things like that. And so I think in the culture wars, we, uh, many white evangelicals adopted this mentality that they should be on top, that they should be able to dictate the course of the nation and mistook the nation as the kingdom of God. And now we're reaping uh, the bitter fruit of that.
2: And I just want to be very clear here, um, which is that I suspect that you and I may not agree on some of these culture war issues. And you, But you don't have to agree on these culture war issues in order to disagree with the white evangelical attitude of besiegement. And that's what you were sort of ending on there, which that's is that right. you can be someone who is uh, pro-life, who who is... Uh, believes in traditional marriage. I'm going to be very careful here because I I want to stay in a place where we can talk about the structure of the argument um, and still think that the white evangelical's approach is is incorrect, which is like what, which is, is is rather mistaking kingdom of God in America. That's right. Uh, that's right. that you can be someone who thinks that we should have prayer in school, but also be someone that thinks that that's something that my personal tradition is about. That I am going to keep that tradition, uh, uh, my community, you know, my my faith community, will, will preserve that tradition. It's not my place to uh, be in political power. Am I sort of making sense there?
0: Yeah. There's there's more than one way to um, fight for justice and your religious beliefs in yeah. in our world. And I think the popular conception, because it's a very large group, it's a very politically power group, is that powerful group is that white evangelicals um, have presented the only way that Christians interact with uh, a broader society. And that's just not true. I, again, go back to the Black Christian tradition. And I mean, what what we're trying to do is say, look, we can be Fannie Lou Hamer Christians, a poor uh, sharecropper from Mississippi who... Um, was a voting rights activist and a crusader for the poor, but had a very deep religious belief. We can be Martin Luther King-type Christians who, who see that people's um, physical and material situation also has to be addressed even as you preach to them spiritual salvation and eternal life. And so, all I'm trying to to do is is be in that tradition and say, look, let's not create this huge dichotomy between the spiritual and the material. Let's not see um, earthly power and systems as the ultimate thing. Let's actually pursue justice the way the Bible has taught us. But you don't. It's not just one avenue to do that. Um, and so I think, because of the experience of marginalization and injustice that African Americans have had to endure, they have come up with a very um, long and robust tradition of protest in the midst of piety.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that this is also where I, I want my fellow, you know, hashtag resistance people to to pay attention, because uh, something I hear a lot and understandably from white folks these days is this sense of um, besiegement, right? Liberal white folks feel pretty besieged these days. You hear a lot of jokes about, you know, uh, your push alerts on your phone. Mm. But, and and I, I those feelings are real, right? Um, People who are sensitive to the plights of marginalized people uh, are feeling uh, concerned these days do feel like they're they also are under various kinds of attack. But I feel like if you are a person of relative privilege in the age of Trump, it is really important to look at the longer history of marginalization. Uh, To know that whatever it is you're feeling, whatever, however attacked you feel by your push alerts. There is a tradition of white supremacy in this country that. Like I uh my friend Rembert put it this way, which is that if white people like feel under attack now, like you guys would have never survived slavery.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's all very relative. Um, (laughs) And that's right. That's right. We need to have good perspective, especially when we look at historically marginalized groups, Um, things women have experienced, the things black people have experienced. It gives us a perspective, the things people right now uh, are experiencing abroad and, and, and beyond the borders of this nation, give us a better perspective of the freedoms we still have in this country. But look, we do live in a very polarized society. Um, not, that this, not that it is, is historically unprecedented, but mm-hmm. we're feeling that right now. And I think it's legitimate to, to feel somewhat embattled, to feel somewhat pushed around. Whether you're on the conservative side or the liberal side, you have values that you want to see expressed more broadly, and they're not. And sometimes they're being maligned and attacked as, as, as bigoted or, or, or what have you. I think those, those feelings are understandable.
2: Yes, I, I validate the feelings. I completely validate them because I do have them too.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. And, and it's also not a one-to-one thing, right? Like if, if those who have historically had power, um, particularly white people or white evangelicals, feel embattled, that's different than a historically marginalized group feeling embattled. And right. I think as people of faith, we need to look very careful at the marginalized groups and what they're saying, because they are the most adversely impacted by the current state of affairs, uh, is one thing to have power and feel like you're losing it. It's another thing not to have power and actually be a victim of a power that is abused.
2: Yeah. And I think that um, for a lot of white people these days, and you're right, I think it is actually felt on both sides of the political spectrum, this feeling of loss of power. Um, you know, uh, people, white people on the right feeling it. Um I think we occasionally make the joke about, you know, uh, if you're, what is it, if you're used to uh, supremacy, equality feels like injustice. Right. Um, right. There may be some of that going on. But I think also on the left, there's the feelings of embattlement have to do with a loss of power for some people. Um, For some people, they were already embattled. You're right. There there are existing communities that were already marginalized and feel even more marginalized now. but I think it's all about perspective. It's all about, for me, the show, a big theme of the show is allyship.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think a big part of allyship is recognizing where you have power um, and where that power can be shared. So it's not a bad thing to realize that you're less marginalized than others.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And, and And we can use our social position for the benefit of others or even harder, we can give up some of the privileges that we have and that we've obtained unjustly because we have more money than people or because our skin is lighter than people or because of our gender, those are advantages that in a truly just society, we shouldn't have over other people. And so then the call becomes, how can you lay down those privileges and how can you make the, the, the playing field more level for everyone else? Um, the way our world works, you, you sort of have to use that privilege um, to flatten the playing field, but sometimes you have to give up that privilege. And that's the way of Jesus, but that's also the hardest thing to do. Um, yeah. So that's one of the things that, that I think we have to contemplate. It's not going to look pretty to fight for justice. Um, you know, we're, we're coming up on Black History Month in February, which is a great time to reflect on not only the activism, but the sacrifices of many people in the civil rights movement, the long civil rights movement, not just of the 50s and 60s. Uh, You know, a lot of people say King died. King was killed. He was assassinated. Why? Because he was preaching the beloved community. Because he said segregation is injustice and resisting those unjust laws was the righteous thing to do. It's not glamorous to resist oppression. Um, And so I think allies need to remember that, look, and this has happened to me, you're going to lose money. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose um, job or or um, positions. This can all happen. Uh, so if you're not willing to do that, then it's best to be silent, learn, and, and hopefully not contribute more to the problem.
2: New year, new you, probably getting a new bra, hopefully, and also get some new sheets. Parachute Sheets is a sponsor of the show that I genuinely love. I have used my own personal money to buy Further pieces of parachute home uh, stuff because I loved the sample they gave me so much. Uh, the sheets are amazing. I use the linen sheets. Uh, my husband loves them. Uh, the linen sheets are really cool, not just because they're already and supposed to be wrinkled on the bed, so you don't have to worry about having your bed look perfect, um, which for me sometimes is a concern, but I don't have to worry. It's already supposed to be imperfect if it's linen. And the other thing is, I don't know about you, but one of the things I discovered in the past year is that you're supposed to wash your sheets a lot more often than most people do. And I'm not going to get into details because it's gross. But suffice to say, uh, you should be washing your sheets more than you think, probably once a week. And linen sheets actually get more comfortable as you wash them. They are like an old pair of jeans, although obviously even softer than that. What's more, Parachute sheets are incredibly um, modern and streamlined looking. Uh, Their pillowcases have the envelope closure in the back. There's no like flap on one side to worry about. So you have this very clean kind of hotel, luxury hotel looking bed. And also Parachute makes other things for the home too. Besides sheets, they make towels, which I also have. And they are super, super luxurious. They're really absorbent and they're enormous. They are truly bath sheets. I am a somewhat smallish person and could probably literally use one of these towels as a sheet. Um, And my husband, who is a larger person, he just loves that they fit him. Um, You know, most people who are tall in this world um, have to make do with things that feel small. And these towels do not feel small to him. What's more, Parachute is a great company. They're obsessed with not just finding the best quality materials, but also uh, using not just organic, uh, but the highest criterion for testing of the materials that they use. They don't use any harmful chemicals or synthetics. And if you don't like the products that you buy from Parachute and you return them, they will go to Habitat for Humanity. But I doubt you're going to return the stuff. It's just really wonderful bedding, uh, wonderful towels, and I'm sure the other stuff is good too because I've been browsing it on the website. And again, I'm, I'm probably going to just use my own gosh darn hard-earned money to buy more of this stuff. It is It is that good. So, If you want to try Parachute Sheets for yourself, you get a 60-night free trial if you go to ParachuteHome.com slash friends. Again, that's ParachuteHome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns and a 60-night free trial, ParachuteHome.com slash friends. Have you ever tried a Kind Bar? I know you've probably seen them uh, in your local grocery store or maybe at your gym, uh, maybe even at a convenience store. They're, they're everywhere, but they're not, you know, really mass-made. They are made in the U.S. Uh, they are made with ingredients you can pronounce. They are a company founded on doing good. They call it not only for profit. Um, they try to balance their success and commercial impact. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily know that, again, because you probably see them everywhere, but you should go ahead and try them because they are tasty and healthy in addition to being good for the world. And you can try 10 of them for free in a Kind Snack box. And all you have to do is pay for shipping. And when you order the sample box, you'll get a chance to try KINDS Snack Club where you can receive monthly snacks at a discount. But really, just all you have to do is try the box. It is full of flavors that you probably have seen around, but also some you wouldn't expect. Uh, They have sriracha flavors and jalapeno if you're a spicy person like myself. Uh, And they also have your more traditional granola type flavors and sweet stuff too. Dark chocolate nuts and sea salt, which is a nice sweet and salty, my favorite combination. Uh, You're going to love them. And again, it's free for 10 of them. All you do is pay shipping. So... You shouldn't have to choose between your health and your taste when it comes to snacking. Kind means you don't. And that's why both award-winning chefs and nutritionists love and recommend Kind Bars. Again, 10 bars, sample box, all you have to do is pay shipping. Go to kindsnacks.com slash friends for that free sample box, kindsnacks.com slash friends. You were talking about the way of Jesus, which is something I'm really interested in. Uh, it is a hard way, right? Um, earlier, you you talked about the Christian tradition being uh, Christianity is actually a religion on the margins. It's it's began as a religion on the margins. Um, it's a way of finding strength um, when you feel marginalized. Uh, I sometimes called myself a follower of Christ before I called myself a Christian. You and I had a little discussion off mic uh, or off uh, tape about. How, you know, I had a lot of trouble coming to Christianity because I had a very specific idea of what Christian meant. But I, mm. I knew I loved Jesus.
0: That's a good some, starting point.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? Like, I actually feel like some people don't get that. Like, I think some evangelicals don't get that. If that makes sense, like, yeah that that specific message, the message of Christ, like whether or not you believe he died, whether you know, whatever you believe about him historically. His message is so beautifully radical, right? Um, it is an, an almost an anarchist you know message uh, to me and this joke has been made before a true social justice warrior message. Mm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, the message of Jesus is sublimely subver- subversive. Um, he loves those who hate him. He runs toward the margins. Rather than towards centers of power, uh, he elevates those who are in the lower classes of society and rebukes and humbles those who, who would consider them on top. And, and we have to meditate on that and contemplate it, but not just think about it, right? We got to act on it, but it's hard to wade through the static. Because religion, particularly in America, has been so wrapped up in race, it's been so wrapped up in politics and power, it's so wrapped up in money that it's hard to remember the core message of the gospel. And I think that's an ongoing struggle with all people. But I think now is an opportune time in this nation for uh, the people who really take their faith seriously. It's not. It's not a cultural accoutrement to them. To contemplate what does it mean to live like Christ and not just be pious in my own private life, not just say prayers with my kids or, or what have you. That's good. Keep doing that. But also, let's let's look at what public justice looks like. And I think that's a, a, a big growth area for many Christians is taking their faith into public without necessarily tying it to power or prestige and doing the sacrificial thing like Christ did in the name of others and love for God.
2: And I think also I would, I would say that it offer another challenge, which is also not necessarily tying it to religion, like tying it to like being able to do the right thing without proclaiming. I'm doing this because I'm a Christian. Like I think some, so I'm in a 12 step program. And uh, there's a catchphrase that we use in those rooms that I like to apply to my faith, which is this is a program of attraction and not promotion. Mm. I think that living one's faith is like the loudest you can preach. Like there is nothing more powerful than someone who is living their values in an attractive way.
0: I mean, that's a word you preaching right now. (laughs) That's right. Well, what I what I've been really encouraged by are Christians who are taking to heart Jesus's command to be salt and light, and to be in the world but not of the world. So I think I think a lot of Christians have misunderstood, particularly on the conservative side, have misunderstood the "in the world but not of the world" thing. So they think that simply existing on earth is being in the world, but but in the midst of that, they can cloister and cluster themselves off from the broader society as much as possible. I'm much more intrigued by and I see much more fruit from believers who are in spaces that would be considered secular or even anti-Christian, wherever that might be, and they are living faithfully. And that doesn't mean they're out marching in the streets all the time. That doesn't mean they're, they're giving speeches or writing you know, articles for national news publications or hosting a podcast, but it means that they are a faithful witness where they are, and in doing that, they're being salt and light. And I think many Christians need to simply embrace that the entire world isn't Christian, and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we know? can be
2: allies, too. I mean, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I was actually going to say, like, Jesus was the ultimate ally, man. You know, um, you don't, an ally doesn't, you know, question his his other allies doesn't question the faith of the other allies doesn't question the background or the morality of their allies you want to be my ally this is how i'm doing it how are you doing it you know um we can be we can be incredibly strong if we're all just following that same path we don't have to we have different reasons for being on it perhaps um but we can link arms and be very very strong. and I actually so I want to actually sort of ask you about a, a little bit about allyship now, just flipping backwards. So you said you talked to all these white evangelical groups about voting about not voting for Trump. They obviously there's they did.
1: <laughs>
2: uh and they're still supporting him. How are you negotiating your relationships with those groups now? Like have you has that are those relationships just sour? Or are you still reaching out?
0: I think there are a lot of people who had, have different relationships with white evangelicalism. Uh, some black Christians have never been involved in it. They've always been in the black church or, or, or some other group, and, and they're like, who cares? You know, like, that doesn't impact my world at all. Um, but there are black folks like me who have been near or in white evangelical spaces for for me, literally half my life. And so I do pay attention to it, but in these days, the past three to four years, and you can look at you can look at Trayvon Martin, you can look at Ferguson, you can look at uh, the Emanuel Nine, Charlottesville, and the election. A slew of events have made I think many Black Christians who are in my position of having some interaction with white evangelicals very much reconsider our relationship to white evangelicalism. Mm. And so we're we're I I personally make a distinction between individuals and the aggregate. Uh, The aggregate of white evangelicalism is very powerful and often very negative for black people in those spaces. Um, I maintain, though, healthy relationships with individual white evangelicals. Um, Some of these folks are are very good friends. They're uh, spiritual advisors. They're uh, prayer warriors with me. And so that's still there, but it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard. We live in such different realities that I I, I recorded a podcast the day after the election that got me in a whole lot of trouble. Um, And I said I didn't feel safe in white evangelical churches at that particular moment. And I said that because not not that I didn't feel physically safe, but emotionally and spiritually safe, because if they could vote for this man who's now president in such overwhelming numbers, numbers, that means they haven't understood my reality and they haven't understood how dangerous white supremacy is for anyone who's not white. And that's sort of the definition of a blind spot It's not that they intend to do me harm, but they can't see it. And so just like when you change lanes and you you don't check your blind spot, you might run into somebody. Well, that can happen in churches, too. You don't see your racial blind spots, and that's going to make you crash into me or my family. And I've got to be very wise and circumspect about who I trust now, about the energy I put out to try to explain to white people uh, the racial situation in America, uh, because all of that's very draining. And so, you know, we changed our name. Uh, I, I'm president of The Witness, a black Christian connect- collective, but it used to be the Reformed African American Network. Mm. And that was very much embedded in um, predominantly white Christian spaces. But we changed our name partially. That's not the only reason, but partially because, you know what, if you want that label and if you want to guard and protect what you consider your spaces, you can have it. Um, it is not worth the, the suffering And the energy and the fatigue to constantly put out these fires. So, yeah, I think a lot of people are reconsidering, you know, white evangelicalism.
2: Hmm. Uh, I actually, so I said we would ask uh, you a little bit about your podcast. Uh, It's called Pass the Mic. Uh, Tell us, what is it about?
0: It's about a whole lot of things. It's a fun show. Um, My co-host, Tyler Burns, and I host a weekly podcast. And uh, the, the slogan is Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. And basically, we address race, religion, and culture from a Black Christian perspective. Now, sometimes we'll branch off and we'll talk about the Black Panther movie because we are super excited about that. Um, I'm wondering after that movie comes out if we just need to flip to 2019 because that's like <laughs> the biggest thing I'm looking forward to. Um, <laughs> But what we're trying to do is, is to be a voice uh, that is not sort of culture war standoffish. We actually love culture and, and not that there aren't parts of culture that need to be changed or, or redeemed. But we're, we're trying to come from, like I said, a black Christian tradition, uh, a minority position and speak to some things uh, that in a, in a way and in a tone and in a cadence that's not as shrill as people have come to expect from many Christians. I don't know how successful we are, but we're we're having fun doing it, and we've gotten some good responses from our listeners.
2: And so I think it's safe to say most of the listeners to the show are pretty culturally liberal. Uh, they, I think they might find themselves, find things uh, both attractive and challenging on your show. Is that correct?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talk straightforwardly about race. Um, you know, Tyler Flathouse said, Donald Trump is a racist and, and we don't tiptoe around those issues. And so people who are entrenched in in any sort of, of culture, I think will find something to shake them up. And we're not trying to do it just to be pr- provocative. What we're trying to do it, what we're trying to do is to build our own table. So mm-hmm. So for so long, uh, black people, whether in the church or politics or uh, the corporate world, have been knocking on the door of white institutions saying, hey, let us in. Well, thanks to the gains of many people who came before us and the prayers and the sacrifices of our ancestors, we don't necessarily have to do that all the time. And so what we're trying to do through the podcast, Pass the Mic, and uh, our website, The Witness, is to say, look, we don't have to knock on the door to get into your house, into your dining room, at your table. We're building our own table. And guess what? We're, 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 we're bringing our own chairs. And we're going to invite people to the table. And we're going to be inclusive in a way that we haven't seen in America before. And we're not the only ones doing it. But we're trying to do it in, in a public manner. We stumble. We fumble. We're building the plane as we fly. But I think that's what um, the call is. And, and hopefully we're making space for a lot more people and a lot more perspectives than there was before.
2: Do you think that there's real potential in these alliances that are forming with people on the secular left and uh, people of Christian traditions who are critical of Trump?
0: I think both those groups you named have to have to come to an accord. So on the secular left, there has to be room for religion. Um, the tradition of activists on the secular left is built on religious activism many, many times throughout U.S. history and world history. Movements for justice have been motivated, fueled, and populated by uh, people of faith, particularly Christians. So there has to be that. I I work with a lot of uh, college students, and black college students in particular, feel this tension between faith and activism. And so they have like these two very separate worlds. One is the activism group and one is the faith group and never the twain shall meet. And so with their activist friends, they're like, leave your faith at the door. That stuff has been the cause of oppression. There's no room for it here. Uh, With their their faith groups, they're like, well, that activism is not really part of religion or or spirituality. You need to leave that at the door. And I'm saying, no, no, not Mm -hmm. at all. There's room for both. And so there has to be, that acknowledgement, I think, um, from secular liberals. Now, the other side from people of faith have to acknowledge the damage that has been done, has to, have to acknowledge the narrative that's out there right now. We are, the burden is on us as people of faith to prove that we're authentic and sincere and can be humble and loving, even as we say these, there are these transcendental truths. Um, many Christians in public have done a very poor job of that. And we got to acknowledge that and come humbly to the table uh, to work together. I think it can be done. I think it's in small pockets, but there has to be that understanding on, on both sides.
2: Yeah, I I can tell you right now, um, there is always a lot of mail after I do a very explicit uh, discussion of religion on this show. Sorry. <laughs> um, some of it is uh, from people who are faith who uh, miss uh, hearing about uh, religion in what are traditionally like left secular spaces. And then a lot of it is going to come from people who've been hurt. Yeah. You know, uh, like I was just thinking back to mentioning my mentioning, uh, that prayer in school might be something that you want to fight for. And I should say that I'm not for prayer in school. Personally, I was using that as an example and I realized that prayer in school can be something that is hurtful. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and that has been used to hurt, to, to preach a certain kind of religion that is, you know, not welcoming. um, It is on, it is on, I think, people of faith to acknowledge that hurtful um, past. Absolutely. Um, And to, and that's sort of what I was trying to say, like maybe a little too broadly about like linking arms and not necessarily saying you, you, I, you have to be Christian too. You know, you can be whoever you are.
1: Correct. Correct. Um,
2: And I accept you for who you are. We have this larger battle. Let us, you know, fight it together. Um, and then I always figure, you know, we'll see what happens at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> is,
0: if there is, is there an end. end?
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah, I, I found in the short term, it's, you know, but in a couple of years, I guess, um, it's been interesting to me, the people that seem to take seriously the fact that we're in a moment of cultural crisis, especially a crisis of justice, um, Those people who may have started out on the right or culturally conservative who um, have now found themselves in dialogue with people on the left, at least in dialogue with people like me, I have seen really interesting movement from them. Uh, Fucking Max Boot said he realized his white privilege now, right? (laughs) Like this guy who's like a a Iraq war cheerleader, um, you know, the face of the Bush administration wrote a column about white privilege. Wow. You know, Bill Kristol is out there, you know promoting medicaid <laughs> like, <laughs> it has been it's been re, it's been real weird
0: it, um, it has yeah uh
2: but i i i think that those are you know potentially good signs um and you know we'll see uh yeah
0: we'll see and i happens. just i think it, it it really a lot of it goes back to acknowledging there's more than one way to be a christian And so for people who are secular or not Christian, it's not all Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson. That is not the face of the entire Christian America, right? Um, Not at all. And certainly not the face of black Christianity at all. I mean, if you look at political priorities of black Christians, it's very different. All right. We're not fighting about prayer in schools. We're fighting to live. Yes. To to survive. Okay, it's existential crisis. Right. Like like when 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 a black man gets shot and killed by law enforcement, that's not an abstract political, you know, agenda. That's real life could happen to me. Okay, so Mm -hmm. so we're we have very different priorities and, and yet we're still people of faith. And so but but also people of faith need to acknowledge there's there's more than one way to be a Christian. And so there needs to be some sort of interdenominational linking arms and 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 a repudiation of this mentality of, well, well, you don't subscribe to all the theological things that I subscribe to. You're not in my particular tribe. Therefore, I won't work with you. And that kind of, you know, intramural fighting among Christians is really dampening the potential positive impact that we can have um, in terms of, of racial justice. So we we just got to get out of our bubbles and and obviously social media and news, sometimes that's not helpful if you confine yourself to people who only confirm your narrative. Um, but we really have the unprecedented opportunity in the information age to expose ourselves to a diversity of of beliefs and methods and, and we should take advantage of that. And I think Christians should be bold to do that and not fear that, well, somehow I'm not going to be Christian anymore if I interact with these people.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I also, I really do believe also listening to podcasts uh, from different, you know, backgrounds than your own is a really, really yeah. like nice beginning step for some people <laughs> um, because it just, you get access to thoughts that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you know, I, it was, it's wonderful to make your uh, acquaintance in in somewhat like real life. Uh, i I I bet we'll have you back. I think so.
0: It would be a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: That is it for the show. Thank you, super fans. It was such a long show today, and I think a lot to get through. So I'm not going to ask anything of you. Not even going to ask you to rate and review the podcast. Although, of course, if that's something you feel moved to do, you should do it. Mostly, thanks for listening. And please take care of yourself.